When was your first time with Shakespeare? Maybe in high school? Maybe you were little and your family went to see it outdoors? Now imagine if your first time with Shakespeare, your very first time, you were nearly 90. Illustrate may, may very well be uh, a role that we ask you to play, but there's actually a larger role that would be something more of a, a commitment on your part, but we'd be interested in hearing you play around with that role for a bit if you're interested. I don't know. I don't know what this is all about. Yeah, but the part is Peter Quince, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll read it over and see what I could handle. I'm getting another education at my age. How about that? Never uh, end. Never thought of it. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In 2011, Ben Steinfeld and Noah Brody, co-directors of New York's Fiasco Theater, were invited to come to an assisted living facility and nursing home just outside New York City to work with the residents on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. The clip you just heard is from a movie that came out of that experience. Because it was the Lillian Booth Actors Home, a facility filled with retired singers, actors, dancers, and musicians, Ben and Noah thought they'd be working with a group of seasoned Broadway professionals. And while there were some, the cast that was finally assembled was largely anything but. The film of this adventure is a documentary called Still Dreaming, produced by Gillian Spitzmiller and Hank Rogerson, who've made a career of filming Shakespeare put on in unusual situations. Hank Rogerson and Ben Steinfeld came in recently to talk about the experience of creating the play, making the film, and the fascinating group of characters who made it all possible. We call this podcast A Dream Past the Wit of Man. Hank and Ben are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I should say right at the top that I pretty much cried my eyes out through your whole film. Do you oh, get that, well. Hank? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I get that, and I get a lot of, of laughter too. I think people kind of seesaw back and forth between tears and releasing the opposite of that, which is the joy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, for me, I think it, it hit right at the top when you have those first shots, which are these lovely outdoor scenes of elderly actors from the assisted living home, and they're practicing their lines for midsummer by themselves while they're walking in what look to be woods or maybe the grounds of the nursing home. I know a bank. Where the wild time blows. Where ox lips and the nodding violet grows. With this, I streak her eyes. And it reminded me so much of the time I spent with my mother in a residence like this and just how confining it was because people are almost always indoors because uh, so many of them aren't that ambulatory or they can't walk unassisted and there isn't much nature around for them to walk in anyway. And so those scenes of these actors practicing their craft outdoors were so beautiful and it just seemed to symbolize the liberation that the the play gave them and the project, just freedom and, and kind of renewed sense of life. Yeah, absolutely. And the home really supports that going out after lunch for a stroll and particularly Demo would go out when, you know, one of the characters in the film, he would go out all the time. 
And we noticed that once the rehearsal started, he was going out with his script. The king of the fairyland. Yeah, I mean, it was just a reflective of the play itself. The, the play starts in the court and then goes into the forest. And the nursing home was more ordered and controlled like the court. But the uh, forest is where magic and chaos happen. And that, that was reflected in the telling of the story and, and showing the home, but also showing the beauty and the chaos of being outdoors. But the other thing that hit, hit me right away, too, is that we usually think of the cast of Midsummer Night's Dream as full of children and just gorgeous 20-somethings, and that it's a story of, of young love. So what made you choose that play for this project? Well, the residents chose the play. Um, I actually came in with the idea of doing Romeo and Juliet, and I proposed that to them, and they said, well, there's just too much darkness, too much tragedy. And there's enough of that in our lives already. We want to do something lighter, something, uh, you know, a comedy. They just kept coming back to Midsummer, I think, uh, because it's an ensemble piece with no real leads. And it's a comedy. When my cue comes, call me and I will answer. Peter Quince, stout the bellows mender. Ah, scratch my head. And Ben, how did you and Noah come on board? Well, I think what happened is that we got an email from Hank and Joanne sort of asking if if we'd be interested. And so I told Noah, I thought maybe this is an interesting opportunity for us to sort of explore what Shakespeare does in an unexpected environment and um, to have an unusual experience uh, with Shakespeare, which is, I guess, redundant. (laughs) Every experience experience with Shakespeare is, is revealing and new. And Ben and Noah, you know, they were up to the task and they did an incredible job of pushing this production to its finish and showing up every day with support and their incredible talent. My, my name is Ben Steinfeld. Uh, my name is Noah, Noah Brody. Uh, Noah and I are, you know, work together in this theater company. We also have our own lives as actors as well as, as, uh, as directing and stuff. So we really tend to make our plays from the point of view of, of actors. I'm just really thrilled that Noah and I get to learn from from all of you, from your artistry and from your experience and, and from your unique points of view about this So what were your expectations and, uh, for uh, for day one? What, what was the plan? And watching the film, it does seem like everybody's, everybody's a little confused, including you. That's exactly right, yeah. I think what Noah and I thought we were walking into was a situation in which a group of enthusiastic residents at the home had sort of formed a Shakespeare group on their own and that they were looking for uh, directors from the outside to kind of come in and help them shepherd this kind of self-generated project. And when we showed up, they essentially asked us what we were doing there. (laughs) You mean you had no idea? Do you not have a basic uh, idea to hold it all together? I I don't know that we could have come in here with, say, here's our version of what this play is going to mean. mean You're not going to do the whole play, are you? Or are you? It's really a question for us as a group. Mm. What, what does success mean for us? What does a production mean for us? Um, does that mean putting, you know, doing the entire play, doing every scene? Well, what have you in mind? What, are you going to cast it? What, who's playing what? Um, a bit practical on that sort of thing. Right. Well, uh, yes, we will, we will cast it. We will have a real... It sort of seemed like everyone was confused by our presence. They thought, you know, we were part of the filmmaking team. We tried to explain, no, we're we're actually here to work on the play. 
they weren't sure what we meant by work on the play. Um, it turned out that the consistency of membership in this self-selecting group was non-existent. Uh, it was sort of a very, very casually organized thing, which had a couple of, en- of enthusiastic and dedicated participants, but also for other people, it was just like something to do instead of watching a game show. Right. It's like so, show up in the activities room and see what's going on. That's exactly it. So all of that was a large surprise to us. And in, in retrospect, I'm sort of embarrassed that it was such a surprise just because I didn't know anything about how these kinds of residential homes work. But it quickly became clear within the first couple of days that what we thought we were getting ourselves into was quite different than the reality on the ground. All right. Are we memorizing these? Uh... We, we... No, I'm just asking because some people will have difficulty memorizing. Are you talking about some people or are you talking about yourself? Whatever. You want to play bottom without memorizing it? Of course I'm going to memorize it. Why do you ask? Do I have to memorize? While the home has many residents who were professionals, it also has people who have children in the stagehands union, which gives them access to uh, the residents as well. So there were people whose connection to show business was limited and whose connection to performing or acting uh, was non-existent. Right. And you mentioned that some people had more of a stake in this production than others, and, and Demo in particular. Why don't you tell us about him, we, since we've been mentioning him? He he plays your Oberon, eventually, and, and he really seems to approach this as almost a, a make-or-break deal for him as an actor. Once in Richard III, I did Clarence, the brother. I always wanted to do that part, and I got to do it in Dallas. But uh, the most important place in New York City was out of my reach somehow, you know. I still hope that I can make something of myself that people will remember. I think he felt like his artistic identity was kind of on the line in this production, which is a positive thing in that he took it very seriously and he brought his full um, experience and expertise and craft. But it was also, you know, as, as my old acting teacher used to say, our, our greatest strengths are also always our greatest weaknesses. And in this case, for Demo, that also meant that he was extremely, uh, he could be extremely bullying and unforgiving and uh, cruel even to his castmates. And that led to some real power struggle issues between Noah and myself and him as we tried to model for Demo what we felt was the right kind of leadership, uh, given his talent and experience, as opposed to treating his colleagues uh, disrespectfully. And then there's Charlotte and Aideen. Why don't you tell us about them, their backgrounds? Uh, and, and they were both dealing with some serious health issues. And at first, they, they really um, just threw themselves into the project. Yeah, it was interesting. Aideen had a tremendous amount of professional experience, and she appeared on Broadway. I know she was in, in a major production of Othello, and her mind was still working well enough for her to understand the diminishment of her faculties. I'm just so sorry I'm creating all these problems, guys. You're very patient. That's okay. Well, you know, we just we just want to try to divide it up into small enough bites mm. for you so that you can say, I'm going to learn this scene, mm-hmm. rather than feeling like you have to learn the whole role. We just want you yeah. to learn one, the first scene mm-hmm. and the second scene so that we can zero in on those. The, the physical stuff and your impulses and your work, of the, it's all brilliant. And yeah. she actually ended up withdrawing from A Midsummer Night's Dream because she didn't feel that she could do the work at the level that she wanted to in terms of memorization, which is a total contrast to Charlotte, who was also a professional, although most of her career was in musical theater. Hold your head. 
And what's interesting about Charlotte is her, I don't know if it was Alzheimer's or dementia, but her mental state was so diminished that she actually wasn't aware of what she didn't know. She showed up every day totally unaware of what we were doing. And then as soon as her aide pointed to her lines, uh, she was playing puck, she released herself fully, full heart, full soul, full mind. And her acting was a complete revelation every rehearsal. And then as soon as it was over, she had absolutely no idea what had happened or what was happening next, but she was having the time of her life when she was doing it. Puck, that remembers since once I sat upon promontory and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back uttering such dulcet and harmonious breath that the very rude sea grew civil at her song and certain stars shot manly from their spheres to hear the sea maid's music. Ha! Ha! Does that remember? That does remember. Now that very time I saw, though thou couldst not, <laughs> Cupid all armed, a certain aim he took at a fair best. She would show up to rehearsals, like Ben says, do something extraordinary and commit entirely and, you know, just blow everyone away. And then lunch would happen and she'd come back in the afternoon and she'd say, oh, look, a camera crew. What I'd known about dementia was that it was, you know, people were very withdrawn and they were angry all the time. And, and she gave me a totally different look at that. Charlotte, we're wondering what, what, how to introduce you here to the audience. You know what I mean? Here she is. <laughs> here she goes. <laughs> Who can say what just happened? Yeah, that's hilarious. Now, do you want to leave your... As a storyteller, it took me some time to embrace that. Okay, this is the way it is. I, I can't make it clear, and I have to embrace that as a storyteller and make it a part of the story, make the confusion and the fantasy that's in the play, that's in the home, try to make that cohesive in the film itself. Yeah, you really see how everything's operating on a number of levels. And Ben, you say at one point in the film, we're operating on nine different realities all at the same time. But it doesn't matter as long as it's a, a positive experience. Yeah, it took me a little while to get there because when I, when I said that thing about nine levels of reality, I was in the midst of a, of a bit of a crisis because of Gloria's unexpected departure, which was not a departure. And so, yes, it took me a while to get to a positive place with that. Tell us about Gloria, because there is this really touching moment in, in the film before you get to that nine realities point mm. where, where you're in rehearsal and you're analyzing the line that Demetrius has where he says, are you sure that we're awake? It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream. Bottom can't trust his senses here, which I would imagine is incredibly frightening if you actually have an experience where you cannot trust fully what you are seeing or be sure of what you're hearing. It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream, that we're still dreaming. This is, a, in my opinion, this is another version of just scrambling the world of our perceptions. Did this thing happen? Well, it happened for us because we saw it. And this yeah. is right at the point where you're having this uh, crisis with one of your uh, players, Gloria. So tell us who she is and what's going on with her. 
Well, Gloria, I believe, had at least mostly, according to her, was mostly a, a writer. She was a playwright. But she was extremely good with language. And when we first encountered her, I thought she was one of the people who was the most cognitively together. She had a sense of humor. She seemed kind of aware of what was going on. She understood the kind of boundaries of rehearsal. She seemed like a perfect Helena. And then she really surprised me near the end of the process by announcing that her friend was coming to, to get her and that she was going to Arizona. And because I associated her as someone who really knew what was going on, I was shocked. I was saddened. I was trying to find a way if there was a way for her to push this back a week so that we could still have her for the show. And when I brought this up to someone who worked at the home, they sort of looked at me like, like I was having a moment. And they said, uh, oh, no, 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 she's, she's not going anywhere. Right, uh, she says this no, all the time. There is no friend. Yeah. yeah, there is no friend. There is no Arizona. There is. She's not leaving. So that, that really threw me. That was the, For me, that was the most challenging moment of the process. And I think it was a period of time where Noah was away for July 4th or something. So I was navigating those few days by myself. And I was really asking myself, you know, what, what is my job here? And what is going on? And how did I get involved with this? And, you know, what, what, mm-hmm. why is my reality sort of doesn't seem to be – I don't seem to be in charge of my own version of reality, which is – difficult in that moment. And then it just becomes another part of the experience. It's the play tapping you on the shoulder again, being like, yeah, it's, it's going to cost you something to encounter that experience, but it'll be worth it for what the play has to teach. Any experience you have is your truth. I mean, that's that's the other, the, the many layers of this experience is that in on one hand, it seems absolutely unique. On the other hand, everything that keeps happening seems like anything that would happen in any professional production. You know, your star, Gloria, drops out. Another of your stars, Aideen, the only actor in the group who had ever performed Shakespeare on Broadway, she drops out. So, Ben, did these dramas start to feel familiar to you, like deja vu that you'd have with any any diva? In many ways, yes. And like most of the time, when those uh, crises strike, um, it's usually in the solution that something revelatory becomes possible. So while we were sad to lose Aideen and her skill and commitment, Mary steps into the role of Peter Quince and in some ways steals the show. I do have a question. Do I express that in a poetry form or, you know, do I uh, hesitate at the lines or do I just just speak it? No, you just treat it like an incident that you're involved in, you know, just like if, if you're having an argument with Lucille, it's the same thing. You treat the play as if it were an incident in your life. I came here to rest. <laughs> Hank, you do such a good job of providing a through line uh, throughout the film that reminds us of the uh, experience that these, the deep experience that these um, actors have on the stage. And I'm thinking of one scene in particular with Bob, I think it's Bob Evans, who's one of the mechanicals, where he just casually starts telling a story by saying, Bob Fosse came to me one day. Bob Fosse came to me and said, can you juggle? I said, yes. I couldn't, but I said, yes. He said, uh, I'd like to use you in a new, 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 new show that I'm doing. He said, I've got to have a dance of the juggles. I said, oh, that's me, Bob. So, you know, uh, so I started learning how to juggle. Yeah, that's Damien. Some of these people had this incredible heritage. 
of working on Broadway and working in the heyday and all these original productions like Guys and Dolls and, and Damn Yankees. But also there were others, such as Mary, who uh, Ben was just referring to, who came about because she, she was a housewife, but her, her son was in the union. So, it, it, you know, there, there, it's just that range of the abilities and you throw into that the cognitive issues. You know, you've so, just so got a kettle for chaos. So your, your relationship here in this room, right, with these people, do you, do you, do you kind of have a sense of it? Demo is my father. No. No. Demo is the lord and master ah, around here. Okay. Yeah, I think we've been over this before. And right. it does erupt so in, into utter chaos, Ben, when your Oberon Demo started trying to direct his scene with a novice actor. And, and so will I grow? Sorry, no, wait a minute. Just Weren't you supposed to go over there? No, you, take, you have to take her. I right have now. to take her. On yeah. But Earthly or Happy. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? Demo, 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 Demo. We just like most fights in any ongoing relationship, it was the result of a perception of a pattern. This was the result of five weeks of Demo, in many ways, you know, sabotaging his colleague's ability to have an experience. Um, it wasn't just what he was doing in that one moment. But I felt that the way he was treating Lynette in that moment was particularly cruel and insensitive, given her uh, issues with fear and anxiety. And um, he, he kind of took things to another level by saying that he could direct the play better than we did and that we didn't know what we were doing. We cannot allow this dynamic. This is the dynamic we cannot allow. you, man. Excuse me. Can you sit down for a second, Lynette? What about dynamics? I know more about dynamics than you do. Demo? Well, I understand your frustration, but you do not... I'm not frustrated. I'm trying to help the girl. She's supposed to be fierce. She's supposed to be proud. Demo, calm down. Try to talk her into how she can be proud. I want you to calm down. We attempted to stay calm. Uh, We tried to take a break. And he pushed past that. And, uh, you know, I felt that he was getting in her face and that he was being inappropriate and that we, we simply had to meet him energetically where he was because that's the only thing that he responds to. This lady can be helped a lot better, and I can do it better than you. I'm, that, that's fine. That is your opinion. That is your opinion. That's my opinion but you do not get to run this room. We have to do this together. I'm and you running. cannot... Demo, Don't you tell cannot. Me that I'm running this room. You can, I am not. Demo, I am trying to help that girl. Let me finish my st- statement. Look at me. What look allow at you? I don't me have to, to look at you. Allow me I to. I can fin- hear you. I'll look that way. Speak. You kind of feel it like that you might be seeing some of the things that prevented Demo, this person, from perhaps succeeding in his in his career. I don't know if that's, that's true. A very, that's you, a very interesting point. It almost seems to be a window into, into his past. So I think you got to about two or three days before your scheduled performance, and it seemed like the play was just in complete shambles. Okay. Let's take a short break, and we'll talk about that little run-through. Well, if an audience just saw that, they wouldn't know what they were looking at. And the story is incomprehensible right now. Yeah. Describe it at that point and, and your state of mind. Well, our goals remained extremely modest. You know, I was reminded of the time when I was working at a performing arts camp for 11 to 16-year-olds or something, and I was directing a show, and I was 
complaining to my friend who was running the camp about how nervous I was about how poorly it was going to turn out and stuff. And he just said, are the kids having a good time? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, are they learning something? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, then the show is a success. And so that's what you do. You just remember where you are. You remember that this is not about you or about what people think of you. It's about the experience of the people you're trying to give an experience to. I wound thee with my sword. And I won thy love. Doing the injuries, but I will wed thee in another key. With triumph and with reverie. And we will do it in action as well as we'll do it before the Duke. I'm sorry, my eyes clouded up. That's okay. In the end, uh, that thing kind of happened, which is that as soon as you recognize that people are going to show up, everyone kind of finds their own way of rising to the moment. And, um, you know, we just wanted to make sure that each person felt endowed with the sort of power to pursue the journey that they were on as actors and to try to let other people be a part of that journey. Gentles, perchance you're wondering about this show? Come blade my breast in view. I am sent was room before to sweep the dust behind the door. And, and how did you see the effect it had on the residents? Because at one point we hear from Lynette, for instance, she says after the performance that... This might be the best thing I've ever done. I discovered that, that I can feel good about myself. And I love... And Demo, who went through all that that strife at Zuras, he, he tells you... In all the years that I was struggling and trying to be a good actor, I never in my life said to myself what I sometimes say here, it's great to be alive. Yeah, I was amazed by what Lynette and Demo had to say. I was amazed that the uh, people who ran the home were telling us that people were taking less medication, that their depression issues were evaporating, that it was good for their... Uh, mental and and physical health. And that was one of the reasons to make sure that the show, quote-unquote, the show itself, happened. If we removed that public component, I think we would have been removing the sense of accomplishment that that they described. Hank, what's the takeaway for you? And I I know that you showed the film and and the director at this uh, residence had a really interesting reaction to it. Uh, You mean Jordan Stroll, the the man who runs the the head administrator at the home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, Jordan, um, recently we did a screening in New Jersey, and uh, Jordan was able to attend that screening, and he came up on stage afterwards, and he said that the process of this production made the home reevaluate how they approached and cared for those with cognitive issues because they watched how even though someone like Gloria had to bow out of the production, the time that she was in the production, she really flourished, Uh, as well as Charlotte, who, when she was there and engaged, she was remarkable and inspirational. So the home adapted its approach to how it cares for its residents with dementia and Alzheimer's and other cognitive issues. And, um, you know, as a filmmaker, you you hope that there are things, there are ripple effects that the story creates. And, um, 
and that was one that hearing it really sort of just made me feel uh, kind of redeemed in some way. And this process that, you know, as Ben has been saying, is difficult days. I mean, days were like, uh, you know, I don't know if I can show up today and and watch what's going on in that room. But moments like Charlotte and, and Joan sing You'll Never Walk Alone, I mean, those were moments that uh, made the journey fulfilling. And Ben, how about for you? Because, and I'm thinking as you were talking a moment ago that there's a scene early on, earlier on in the film where you and Noah are walking out the front door, I think, and a gurney right. is coming out at the same time with a resident on board. And one of you says something like, well, I guess we'll spend the next six weeks confronting our own mortality. Yeah, that was one of Noah's better lines. I mean, yeah, it, 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 there was a level on which that was true. There was a level on which the day-to-day experience of those six weeks was more challenging than it was fun. And like a lot of experiences like that, you end up being glad that you did it. Um, it's not necessarily one you would dive into again with the same level of naivete. But in the end, um, you know, Noah and I are both teachers in addition to being actors and directors. And that's kind of what I mean about doing Shakespeare in non-professional environments. I mean, I'm sure this is true of the prison program that Hank you know, told a story about in his other film, in the Shakespeare Behind Bars film. It's true of Shakespeare in educational environments. It's true with the elders, which is that when you do this work outside of the confines of the profession, all kinds of revelations become possible that sometimes are not as possible when everyone's worried about doing a good job and, and that this sort of represents who they are as an artist and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the things that gets you excited if you're a teacher is you get excited by growth. You get excited by change and you get excited by people becoming a participant in something that they previously didn't see themselves as being able to do. And um, this experience was more like a teaching experience than it was like a directing experience. And once uh, we allowed ourselves to frame it that way, everything becomes kind of good news. Well, it was really moving. And I really uh, thank you for coming on the show today and, and talking with me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. And Ben, thanks so much for joining us too. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. Hank Rogerson is a filmmaker who, along with Jillanne Spitzmiller, produced the film Still Dreaming that followed the making of a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream by Fiasco Theater's Ben Steinfeld and Noah Brody at the Lillian Booth Actors Home in Englewood, New Jersey. Hank and Ben were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Still Dreaming aired on public television stations nationwide in April 2018. You can stream it or buy a DVD at www.stilldreamingmovie.com shop. A Dream Past the Wit of Man was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, Robert Ald and Deb Santopoulos at the Radio Foundation in New York, and Sean Conlon at public radio station KSFR in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We hope you are enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help in increasing people's access to these wonderful interviews. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. 
You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Come visit us in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.